I'm going to be reading the text this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll be reading verses 1 to uh, 13, which is the entire chapter. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. As we launch into First uh, Corinthians chapter 8 now this morning, uh, we are entering into a section that goes actually until verse 1 of chapter 11. It's a lot of uh, verses that are going to be um, uh, written or dedicated to this issue of food offered to idols. And so it's important that I think that we get off on the right foot as we start in chapter 8. Um, as I was thinking about this uh, particular text today, I was running around in my head this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And we've been thinking about this actually over the last number of months here in the church as we've been thinking about that little phrase, in Christ. To be a Christian is to be in Christ, is to have your life hidden in Christ Jesus. And when a person understands that uh, when they become a follower of Jesus Christ and put their faith in Jesus Christ, that they become united to Christ, it should change everything about their relationship with God. I suspect, though, that many of us, as we think about this phrase being in Christ, think about it in very personal terms. For instance, we would say, and the Bible would say, I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. And so we wrestle around with that, and we say, well, that's a really personal term. I'm united with Christ, and Christ is united with me. The problem, though, in defining that relationship or that union with I am in Christ and that Christ is in me, is that it makes that union all about me. It makes me sort of the center of my Christian world and of my relationship with Jesus Christ. But in fact, if you uh, work your way through this phrase and through the scriptures about being united with Christ, we'll find out that uh, the, one of the most appealing aspects of being united with Christ is that it's not about you and it's not about me, but rather it's about being part of a body or being part of a, a family of God. To be in Christ, biblically, is to be something much bigger than just my personal relationship with God through Christ. 
It is something more comprehensive. It is something more wonderful. It is something much bigger. And in fact, we could say union with Christ has cosmic implications. Our union with Christ is part of what it means to be in the body of Christ. And Paul talks about that, that when we become Christians, we become part of a body. And we're all, uh, just as we have hands and feet and eyes and nose and ears that are all uh, make up part of the body. So as Christians, we all create part of this body of Christ. Robert Bella, some of you might have been familiar with his work that he wrote a little while ago. He often would write about radical individualism. And he defined it as a powerful cultural fiction that we not only can but must make up our deepest beliefs in the isolation of our private lives. In other words, all that we find out about ourselves, all the meaning that we give our lives is made up strictly in and of ourselves only, with no connection to others and other things. In other words, we define ourselves. We live for ourselves. It's about my personal rights and my personal freedoms. That's what radical individualism is. But what I think Paul wants us to understand as he deals with this specific issue of meat offered to idols is that he wants us to remember that um, as we are united with Christ, we are part of a larger family. That union with Christ is not just about you and I alone. That we are not the only one, after all, who is in Christ. That when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we join with countless others, even in this room, who are also in Christ. We become part of this incredible body that is bound together by even closer bonds and ties than with our own flesh and blood. And the walls that so often divide us of race, ethnicity, class, uh, and gender have been torn down, and Christ had made us one. And so it's our union with Christ that is, is at the heart of what Paul is going to explain to us in this issue of meat being offered to idols. And it's a principle that I hope you understand as we go through this text. I hope you will look at the principle that Paul is um, uh, articulating for us and see how it is to guide our relationship with one another who are also in Christ. So this is the issue that we're wrestling with today. Is it possible, is it possible that my behaviors, my freedoms, can be constrained by the conscience of another? Is it possible that my behaviors or my freedoms can be constrained by the conscience of another? It might be okay to do something, but what happens if my doing that something causes a brother or sister in Christ to stumble? And what if by my doing that something, I actually sin against Christ? That's the issue that... Paul is going to unpack in this text. He begins in uh, verses 1 to 3 with simply the preamble. And he starts now with food offered to idols. This is the next issue that's on his list as he's talking with the Corinthians. They've written them and, and they're really wanting to say to him, listen, we know that it's okay to eat meat that's offered to idols. And so Paul writes to them and he says, listen, uh, uh, we need to work this through. Food presented in worship to the God in whose temple they were sacrificing was an issue. And the, the, the dilemma that they were facing is, can I eat that food? If something has been offered to an idol in worship of that idol and that God, then can I eat that food? In the day and age in which this letter was written, a culture was saturated 
with the belief in many gods. And in our culture today actually is saturated with the belief in many gods. And also with the belief in many evil spirits. Most sacrifices in those days were meat sacrifices. And in the ancient world, they believed that the demons were constantly trying to invade human beings and come to uh, live in their bodies. And so the easiest way for them to do that was to attach themselves to meat because the meat would be ingested. And so the meat was first offered as a sacrifice to a god. And in that offering of that sacrifice to the god, then the meat or the demons were removed from that meat. Sacrifices were then divided into three parts. One part was uh, uh, given uh, to, the, uh, to the idol. Uh, another part was given to the priest. And the third part was for the worshiper to consume on their own. As you might imagine, the priests who offered these sacrifices had way more uh, meat to deal with than they could eat themselves and their families. And so what they would do is they would take this meat and they would give it to the public market or sell it to the public market. And it had high value because it had already been cleansed. It had already been purified. Uh, and so it was good meat to buy and then bring home and eat. Uh, there are two problems then that the Corinthians are dealing with. One was this meat had been associated with a pagan god or god goddess in worship. Secondly, it had been associated with superstition. And as you can imagine, it would be nearly impossible for a Christian to avoid the issue of meat offered to an idol. Because every special occasion, every festival, every marriage, every birthday, all special events were held often in temples, in rooms that were adjoining the temples, and they were associated with idol worship and meat that was offered to idols. And so the meat was offered and it was brought next door to the kitchen in these rooms and they would partake of that meat. So some Christians were unable to eat this meat. For them it was a challenge. And they were unable then, because they wouldn't eat that meat, to participate in a lot of community life and even family celebrations. For them to eat that meat would bring back all kinds of memories and all kinds of associations that would take them back to their old life before they became a Christian. And in fact, they could go to a home of their neighbors and, and they would also be challenged because every meal, of, a big meal or meat that was offered likely was at one time or another offered uh, to an idol. And so they couldn't eat it. Other Christians, though, didn't have these same troubles. To them, meat was meat. The deities really did not exist, and demon superstitions were, well, just that superstitions to them. Why couldn't they, oper uh, uh, um, why couldn't they live in their freedom then? What's the big deal? Well, Paul's comments, we'll find out, are directed to those who are asking the question, why can't we eat this meat? It's no big deal. But his concern is for those who are vulnerable, those whose consciences are bothered by the fact that some were eating meat offered to idols. In Corinth then, what Paul was saying was to the mature believers in Christ, don't focus on your liberty. Don't look at the freedom that you have in Christ, but rather give way to the weaknesses of the immature. Don't look at your freedom, look at their need. Let love trump your knowledge every time. Some might say today, well then, what's the big issue here? Why does this matter to me? There's a good chance that there's not a single person here, or maybe not more than two or three, that had ever been put in a situation where you might be faced with the reality of eating meat that was offered to an idol. 
So does this have any relevance whatsoever to us as followers of Jesus Christ today? I think it has huge relevance because the problem and the principle that confronted the Corinthians still confronts us at almost every turn of our Christian life. And the issue is this. How far does my Christian freedom in regards to things that are not moral or things that are not sinful, how far does Christian freedom go in regard to behavior not specifically forbidden in Scripture? In other words, am I free to do whatever I want, whenever I want, if I think it's okay, as long as it's not a moral issue? That's what Paul is addressing here. And so they come to him and they say, listen, we have knowledge. And Paul says, well, listen, we all have knowledge. You don't have a corner on knowledge here. And just by that little insertion of the word all there, Paul is forcing them to recognize that, that um, they can't put themselves above everybody else. They're not the only ones who know things. They're not the only ones who understand spiritual realities. They're not the only ones that have thought through this issue of meat that's been offered to idols. But the implication is that they're saying, well, our knowledge is fuller than yours. And we've come to the conclusion that we can eat meat that's been offered to idols, regardless of what anybody else thinks or how it impacts anybody else. They had an air of arrogance in their freedom. Their knowledge gave them a freedom that they, that they had come to on their own thinking that many others had not yet embraced. But Paul says to them a few things. First of all, he says, I want you to understand that knowledge can be a breeding ground for arrogance and pride. I think many of us have come in contact with people over the course of our lives who are so full of their knowledge that you want to run from them as fast as you can. Because they think they know everything about everything. And it's actually pride and arrogance. There is a weakness, though, I believe, in knowledge, if you're willing to admit it, and that is this. The more you know, the less you know. It really takes humility to be able to say that and to actually mean it and believe it in your life, that the more you know, the less you actually know. Knowledge on earth is incomplete. And really, really knowledgeable people, I believe, know that they know that they don't know everything. They're just smart enough to figure out that, okay, I just don't know everything there is to know about everything. But the foolishly knowledgeable people don't know that they don't know everything. And some of you might know people like that. In this instance, their knowledge was all about them. They thought they knew everything there was to know about whether or not one could eat meat offered to idols. And they had concluded that, yes, I can eat meat offered to idols, and it's not a big deal. Paul says, though, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. In verse 2, he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. In other words, you don't know everything. You think you know it all, but you don't know it all. And then he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This catches us a little off guard because we might expect something like this, rather. If anyone loves God, he has real knowledge. I think that's what I would expect Paul to have written. But he shifts the focus from knowledge that we might have to the most important knowledge of all, which is God's knowledge of us. That we are known by God. The Lord knows those who are His. God has called us and He has saved us and He has made us His sons and daughters. And more important than knowing something partially is to be known completely by God. And so Paul argued, listen, knowledge is important. He doesn't decry that. Paul will say it a lot. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? 
Paul was a pretty bright guy. And so Paul is not down on knowledge. But as in everything else, without love, knowledge is nothing. That's why Pastor Barry read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Loving and being loved by God is everything. Paul here implies that if one is loved by God and loves God, then he will also love other believers who God also loves. And so Paul is, is putting knowledge and love in contrast to one another. I think we understand this, or we should understand this as believers and as children of God, that love is the key to behavior, not knowledge. Knowing my personal freedom is not enough because not all things build up. Not everything that we are free to do builds another person up. And so our conduct is to be directed by love of God, not impartial knowledge. Because love sets the limits to our liberty, not knowledge. So what's the problem then? There's, there's these different levels of knowledge. Paul addresses, it seems, two um, little phrases that they have brought up in their correspondence. The first phrase is simply this, an idol has no real existence. And Paul agrees with them. That's true. There are no such things as real idols that have real existence. They don't have eyes. They don't have mouths. They don't have ears. They can't hear. They can't see. They can't do anything. They're dumb. But Paul goes on a little bit later. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, Now I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. See, behind idolatry is the worship of demons. Behind the idols that are nothing and have no existence are real demonic spiritual forces. So while there are no other gods, there are malevolent spiritual realities behind idols. So the first statement is an idol has no real existence. And Paul says, I agree with that, but you need to know this. Secondly, there is only one God. And Paul allows that there are many so-called deities, deities that the idol worshippers believed existed. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that in Hinduism there are over 3,000 deities. So Paul acknowledges that there are many deities that people believe exist and worship. But he says, really, there is only one God. There aren't a whack of deities out there in which God is one of them. There is only one God. And by the way, this God, he says, by this God, all things exist. Um, in, in verse um, uh, 5, he says, For although there may be so many so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God and Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. I love the title, God the Father. It's this compassionate, merciful, relational God that we can enter into a relationship with through Him. It says, from Him all things exist. There is nothing in this world that happened by chance. There is nothing in this world that has existence outside of God's commanding word. Everything that exists come from God. And we exist because we come from God, and as a result, we exist for God. Our sole purpose of existence is not for ourselves, but it is for God because He made us. We owe our life and our worship to God, not anything in the world that He created, because we came from Him and we exist for Him. And he goes on to say, and there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. This is significant just from the fact that it puts Christ on the same level as God. 
same essence as God the Father, but he says, through Christ are all things. Christ is the agent of creation through which God created all things. Through Christ we exist. Our lives are bound up in Christ, so our very breath comes from Christ. So what's the big deal then? What's this big deal about eating meat offered to idols? Well, verse 7 is a key transition. Notice it says in verse 7, however, however, what the Corinthians stated was true and right. An idol has no real existence, and there is only one God. Therefore, eating meat offered to idols is really a moot point because there are no such things as idols. But Paul says, however, their knowledge did not take into account those who had not yet concluded the same things about idols and gods, nor did it take into account spiritual realities behind that idol worship. There might have been some people in that Corinthian church that were still wrestling with whether or not they wanted to follow Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as they came across this issue, they, they understood that there was something wrong with it, and they didn't know how some could do it and some couldn't do it, and how did that go together. Or maybe others were coming to understand for the very first time that there was only one right God, but they had not yet come to fully understand that there was only one real God. And so for them, they're in this transition period about growing in their faith and coming to understand what freedom in Christ is all about. See, maybe, just maybe they knew this, but they were not yet able to shake the realities of their past. You know, that, that when, Christian, when people become Christians, they can't just give up their past in an instant. Their past comes with them in a certain way. And for them, their past had associations with temple feasts and with celebrations and offering sacrifices to idols and eating the meat and believing uh, and that the meat was uh, pure of demons. And as they ate this meat associated with idol worship, it says their conscience was defiled. Have you ever thought about that? A defiled conscience. A defiled conscience is a polluted conscience. A defiled conscience is a troubled conscience. Have you ever had that? Have you ever felt that your own conscience has been defiled? When you do something, you're confused about it, you're conflicted about it, you're plagued with feelings of guilt. To violate your conscience, to defile your conscience, is to do something that you believe is wrong or you think has associations with wrong, but you're doing it because you're not quite convinced of that yet. You haven't yet fully understood the implications of that behavior. And Paul will write in Romans, he says, but whoever has doubts, this is doubts about a behavior, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is not eating from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I think that's one of the best guidelines or one of the most helpful principles for Christian freedom is if I can't do it with a pure conscience, I ought not to do it. Period. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So then, the conscience of my brother or sister is at stake. And you might say, well, is that my worry? Am I to be bugged or bothered by the fact that my freedom might trouble somebody else's conscience? Isn't my life all about me? I'm in Christ. I have this great freedom. Why is my life, why does it have to be about others? 
my knowledge may confirm in my conscience that what I, is do, what I am doing is right. But if my actions will cause defilement in another's conscience, for the sake of love, I will not do it. Then he articulates this principle. First of all, from the perspective of earth. In verse 8. He simply says in verse 8 that there, food will not commend us to God. We are not worse off if we eat it, and we are no better off if we do. I think we understand that, right? You're not made more like Christ by what you avoid eating or what you eat. Food has nothing to do, really, with your sanctification in the sense of just eating pure food. How I handle the Word of God matters. How I talk about Christ matters. That I pursue sanctification matters. That I strive for purity in the church matters. But what I eat doesn't make me more or less acceptable to God. I read three different translations of this verse, and they, they each help me. The first one is simply, if you read it from this translation, it's like the lights go on. But of course not. Food can't make us acceptable to God. Another translation, kind of a newsflash. It is true. Nothing that we eat can win us God's approval. Bottom line, food will not make us acceptable to God. So Paul is saying food does not bring us nearer to God. Doing things not forbidden by God have no significance in our relationship with Him. They are spiritually neutral. From an earthly perspective, then, Paul is saying, listen, food doesn't matter. That's, uh, it does not matter. It's in the past. That's from some movie. I don't know what movie. Some of you probably know, but I don't know. It just came in my head. <laughs> so then, if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God, listen to this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But from the perspective of heaven, we're talking about sin. He restates the principle there in verse Nine, he says, but take care. That's an imperative. It's a command. It's not an optional. Take care. It's a personal right. Take care that this personal right of yours. In other words, understand that you might have a freedom. You might be enjoying something. You can do it fully and freely without any guilty conscience before God, without defiling your conscience before God. Take care that this freedom of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. See, what Paul is saying is, listen, my freedoms... The things that I have come to realize before God are not issues of sanctification or issues of sin. My freedoms that I have come to understand, which have been guided by my knowledge of those things, even though they might be correct, are not always right to engage in. A stumbling block 
Well, that's a stumbling block. A stumbling block is something in the path of somebody that causes them to trip. It's something that causes them to fall. It could be a stone in the pathway. It could be a root that grows across a path. If you've been hiking in the mountains, sometimes you, you find roots that are stumbling blocks. Um, they, they, they can be an, ox, uh, an obstacle. It's something, anything that makes it difficult for one to make progress or to stumble and fall. And so if we go back to the beginning, then knowledge, which puffs off, says, this is my right. I'm good with this. Love that builds up says, I don't want my freedom to cause another one to stumble. Romans 14, 13 there says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Decide. Decide ahead of time. When you're going to be with a group of Christians and a group of brothers and sisters and there's something that you do that you understand not everyone else does, decide that you will not do anything that will cause a brother or sister to stumble. Paul gives three reasons, and we can get through these quickly, about why we are to take care. Reason one is that by exercising my right, I may encourage another to sin. That's what he says in verse 10. I'm not making this stuff up. up. He says, if anyone sees that you have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? It's the same word that's used where it says love builds up. That's a positive. Here it's a negative. He will be built up, encouraged to do something that defiles his conscience. All sitting around a table in the corner of a temple, a meat's brought out, you all start to eat, there's a New believer or somebody that doesn't yet have your freedom, without blinking an eye, you dive in with knife and fork and start chowing down on the steak. What's a conflicted brother to do? I guess I should eat. I don't want to be the only one who's not having a steak. This is no time for me to become a vegetarian. I'm going to start eating. And so he's encouraged. And in his encouragement, he defiles his conscience. You see, our conscience is an instrument of the Holy Spirit. A weak conscience is one that has not yet been fully developed. It's not one that has been developed by truth, by consistent reading of the Word, by exercising faith in different situations. But as we mature, our conscience develops, and and it it shapes us, and it directs us, and it, it guides our behaviors and our actions, and Um, uh, We gain spiritual strength and better spiritual judgment. A conscience is developed over time. Conscience is God's doorkeeper to keep us out of places where we could be harmed. And so let's go, let's back up the tape then just a little bit. Before I will dive in with knife and fork, ask this question. If the exercise of my freedom will defile the conscience of a brother or sister in Christ, then should I exercise that freedom? You see, Christian freedom does not void all taboos. Christianity, one of the things I love about Christianity is it's about freedom. But it does not grant me the freedom to do whatever I want. And it's not just about me and what I can and can't do. It's also about the danger of accommodation and compromise with the world around us. So again, knowledge puffs up. 
fills me with pride. It encourages my freedom. It says, embrace it, Paul. You figured it out. You're free to do it. Love builds up. Says my brother or sister in Christ is part of the body of Christ, and their weak conscience will constrain my freedom. And so by exercising my right, we encourage another to sin. Secondly, by the exercise of our right, our brother is destroyed. That's strong language. Verse 14. Or sorry, not verse 14, verse 11. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. That's heavy. That's, that matters. In, the, in languages, word order often matters. And in Greek and Hebrew, if they want to emphasize something, they put it at the beginning of a sentence. And so in this particular sentence, we have at the very beginning, this is a literal translation of this Greek sentence. And so destroyed, the vulnerable brother is by your knowledge. It sounds like Yoda. Sorry. And so destroyed, the vulnerable brother is by your knowledge. The brother Christ died for. There's no getting around this. Destroyed is a strong word. It means to perish, to utterly ruin. The implication here is clearly spiritual harm, not physical harm. It means to bring spiritual disaster to. We lead a person into ruinous sin by leading them into a situation they cannot handle. And the flagrant abuse of my freedoms can bring about the spiritual harm of a brother or sister for whom Christ has died. Paul always uses this word destroyed, always uses this word to refer to eternal final destruction. And his fear is that one will rejoin the ranks of the perishing. I don't understand all the theology behind this. It has really stretched my mind this past week to wrestle around with this. How can I, by my freedom, spiritually destroy one for whom Christ has died? I don't know if I need to have a full explanation to understand that I ought not to do it. I've been trying to figure it out. We understand Paul talks about us being part of a body of Christ. We are connected together. I was in uh, Home Depot this week um, picking up a power washer, or last week, to power wash my roof. And uh, I went in and a nice hot sunny day and I had my sandals on and I was doing all the paperwork and got the power wash and the guy looked at me and says you're not going to do this in your sandals are you I said no no I got some shoes at home steel-toed boots that I'll put on when I do this it's a good thing he says because we had someone brought bring back one of these sheen and he cut off the end of two of his toes <laughs> Ooh. but for the sake of freedom <laughs> to wear flip-flops or sandals while they were doing their driveway, they whacked off the tip of two of their toes. In a much greater way, what kind of spiritual damage do we do to the body of Christ when we exercise a freedom for which one does not yet understand? And I ask myself, well, is this only a warning or is it a warning with teeth? Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea 
and that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Another place, Paul writes, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You see, Paul is saying again, our freedom should never be exercised at the expense of a brother or sister who has been bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. So knowledge puffs up. It says, it's not my issue, it's theirs. I'm not going to be constrained by them. But love builds up. This is my brother. This is my sister in Christ. I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause them spiritual harm. And then the last reason is the careless exercise of my rights leads to my sinning. In verse 12, Paul writes, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul understood this connection on the road to Damascus as he was going to persecute Christians. Jesus appeared to him and he said, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul understood very clearly at that moment that these people he were persecuting were part of the body of Christ. They were in Christ. And when he was persecuting them, he was persecuting Christ. David, after a sin with Bathsheba and a sinful murder of her husband, stands broken before the Lord and confesses against you and you only have I sinned. Oh, it was a grievous sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, but ultimately the sin was against God. This word wound, it's a strong word. It's used metaphorically only here in the Bible. Its customary use is for striking vigorous blows or for beating the strong hit the weak conscience and in the process wound them. We should be eager to limit our liberty any time and to any degree such that we do not wound the conscience of one of our brothers or sisters in Christ and sin against Christ. So again, knowledge puffs up. I don't see my action as sin. Love builds up. Why would I do this? and exercise my freedom at the risk of offending my brother or sister and sinning against Christ. I hope we know this morning there is no such thing as a Christian charter of personal rights and freedoms. Others matter. Finally, this resolve, and I don't even need to say anything about it other than to read it. Therefore, Verse 13 is resolved. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Fill in the blank. I've been very careful not to encourage your legalism or to inflame your license today, but no doubt every one of you has something that you could substitute for meat offered to idols. So therefore, fill in the blank. If blank makes my brother stumble, I will never do blank lest I make my brother stumble.
we draw to a close very quickly. It's a fascinating passage of Scripture. And I just want to speak to any of you who may be here this morning and you don't know God and you don't know Christ and you're wrestling with all of this stuff and just ask you, what is your relationship with God? Because Paul addresses that a little bit in here. Do you know do you know that everything in this world comes from him? And do you know that you exist for him? It's a wonderful reality to come to that we're not just floating around here in nothingness with no meaning or purpose, but this world has purpose designed into it by the creation of God. And creation exists for him. You're not far from God today. As he says in another place, in him we live and move and have our being. But if you're restless in this world, that's a good thing. And one of the old writers put his finger on it and he says, listen, you will be restless in this world until you find your rest in God. God has made us all with this void that can only be filled by himself. And that way back to God begins with repentance because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world and everything and everyone in it. And through repentance, we begin to, to find our way back to God. And repentance is done through Jesus Christ. He has done all the work that we need to make it right with God. All we need to do is put our trust in Jesus Christ and believe that he has satisfied all the demands of God on our life. And so we come back to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, one place, said, um, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the way you enter into a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. And if you're willing to do that today, you can leave here, as Paul says, calling God your Father and starting a whole new journey into everlasting life. To leave here knowing that you are known by God. It's a wonderful thing to know that somebody knows you inside and out better than you even know yourself and loves you enough to want to bring you into a relationship with him. Father, we thank you for your word today. It's um, a challenging word because we all want to live with our freedoms and we all want to live for ourselves. It's just a natural tendency that we have. The wonderful thing about being a Christian is that it's not just about me. It's about my brothers and sisters in Christ as well. So help us, Father, as a body here in Parksville, this local body of believers, to live in such a way that we're aware of the other's strengths and weaknesses. And would you help us determine and decide even now that those things that we are okay doing, but things that cause others to stumble, we will willingly refrain and restrain from them for their benefit. And Lord, if there are some who don't know you today, oh, Father, would you be merciful to them and draw them to yourself through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.